committing to there. Second Peter 3, let's read verse number 18 together. Ready? Let's read it out loud. Here we go. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. If I was going to give you a grade on that, I'd give you about a C-. We can do better. All right? Let's, let's, let's achieve an A+. Let's read it together. Let's really read it with some enthusiasm. All right, here we go. Ready? But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Much better. The title of the sermon this morning is this. How has God's grace changed your living? How has God's grace changed your living? You see... If you truly are a believer and Jesus, Jesus has changed you by His grace, boy, some things in your life should have shifted around. Some things ought to be very different. This is part of our series, Being Rich Toward God. Are you rich toward God? And we've, we've talked about this all month of August. But instead of just being worried about financial wealth on earth, how about our financial wealth in heaven? And so let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll hop right in here. God, thank you for what we've seen and experienced. Be with the sermon this morning. Help me as I preach to say those things that will best help the folks here. May each one receive a blessing uh, for their attendance today. But Lord, more important, may each one of us leave here equipped to live out the Christian life just as you intended from the pages of God's Word. The Bible is practical, Lord, today. Help me not to get in the way. Help me to keep it practical. May we leave here and put it into practice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I open the sermon this morning with this statement. God's grace is radical. God's grace is radical. You say, well, what is grace? What does that mean? Grace by uh, a biblical dictionary would be defined this way. The unmerited or undeserved favor of God given to those who are under condemnation. Again, the unmerited... Let's read it together. Here we go. Ready? The unmerited or undeserved favor of God given to those who are under condemnation. Now, uh, John 3 tells us that we're under a condemnation because of sin. And because of the sin that we have committed, we are uh, condemned to go to hell because of our sin. Grace not only releases us from that, but also gives us great wealth in spite of that. Look with me at second, rather, let's look at what mercy means. Grace in contract of, uh, contrast of mercy. Mercy is defined this way. To pardon, exonerate, or dismiss the crime and its consequences on one who is guilty. So, let me illustrate for you this morning the difference between grace and mercy. Let's say that my daughter April disobeys me and then shows repentance prior to me punishing her. And then I choose not to punish her due to her repentant attitude. All right, so she's done wrong. She's in deserving, she deserves punishment. But because of her repentant attitude, prior to punishing her, I let her off. Now that would be mercy. That would be mercy. But let's just say that right after that, I choose to take April out for pizza. Now that would be grace. That would be grace. Some might call this a radical action. Your daughter did wrong and you took her out for pizza? That seems radical. Your daughter did wrong, she showed repentance, and instead of punishing her, you took her out and bought her a new dress? That seems radical. Now, this morning we're not talking about the feeble attempt of a father to extend grace to a child. We are talking about an eternal God who hates, and I mean hates, our sin. We are talking about an eternal God who created a plan to forgive our sin. We are talking about an eternal God who either has or wants to forgive you and set you free from the condemnation of going to hell. This God not only wants to take away your sin punishment, but furthermore, He wants to open up to you the treasure trove of His eternal bank account and He wants to make you an heir. Yes, He wants you to go to heaven. Uh, but the riches of God's grace flow freely and are available to you the moment you become a child of God. So, now here's what I want you to get. When I was a young man growing up through church, I focused a lot on the thou shalt and thou shalt nots of the Bible, right? We had a Jewish man visit the church. 
a few months back, and I stood back here and I spoke with him, and he shared with me how many laws there are in the Old Testament. And it's something like 617. I don't remember the exact number. There's a bunch of them, man. He shot that number right out at me. And I stopped in my mind and I thought back to a time in my Christian life where I was focusing on following the rules of the Bible and doing my very best to be disciplined in my flesh to keep all of the rules of the Bible. And here's what I want you to hear. And here's what I want you to get from me this morning. Uh, I have shifted from a focus on God's law to a focus of living under God's grace. And because now I live by God's grace, I, more, I now keep the laws more by default than I did when I was trying to keep the laws. Now that statement may have gone over some of your heads and it may have gone in one ear and out the other of others. But listen what I'm saying to you this morning. When we focus on the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, we ignore God's grace and then feel a tremendous sense of guilt when we don't keep the rules of the Bible. When we focus on God's grace and then grow within that grace, God takes us on a journey. And as we grow closer to Him we by default begin to obey the rules of the Bible. By way of introduction, let's do a mini Bible study about this topic of the grace of God. So, listen, I want you to have your Bibles out, and I want you to use them this morning. If you're not in the habit of doing that, I'm asking you to make the effort this morning. Take your Bibles over to Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at several verses, and when you leave church this morning, I hope you have a much deeper understanding of what God's grace is and how it is to work in your life, not only for salvation, we're going to talk about that, but even well beyond salvation. So by way of introduction this morning, let me give you several thoughts about God's grace, and we're going to move through these quickly so then we can get to the meat of the message. This is just meant to set the stage, lay the foundation for the meat of the message. So uh, by way of introduction here, let's notice the abundance of God's grace. Look at Romans chapter 5 and look at verse number 5. The Bible says there, "...and hope maketh not ashamed." Look at this phrase here, "...because the love of God is shed abroad." Think of a flashlight in a dark room being turned on. The love of God is like that flashlight. It is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. So, yes, God hates sin. Dogmatically, God hates sin, but... God loves you even though you are a sinner. And so God needs to find a way to love you away from a sin debt, love you out from underneath a, con a condemnation, and how is He going to shed that light abroad, shine that flashlight of love in our hearts? He's going to do it through grace. Look down at verse 15 and we understand more about the love of God. Now pay attention on purpose for me this morning. We're doing a Bible study and I want you to really lock in with me here. Look at verse 15. It says here, but not as the offense. So also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, speaking of Adam, many be dead, much more, read that next phrase with me, the grace of God. Ready again, the grace of God. And next phrase, the gift by grace which is by one man, Jesus Christ, finish the verse with me, hath abounded unto many. So we see here, the grace of God is a gift by grace, and it is meant to abound, to flourish, to be poured out in great quantity unto many. Look down at verse 17. 17. For if by one man's offense, speaking again of Adam and his sin in the garden, for if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive phrase, read with me, abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. So we see here that God's grace, the pouring out of unmerited and undeserved favor upon us, we see that it is an abundant amount of grace. It abounds. It's in great abundance. Look down at verse number 20. Look at verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Look here. Read the rest of the verse with me. Ready? But where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. So God looks down and He sees all of the sin of the world. And oh, what a great quantity of sin. How much sin goes on in the world in just one day? What horrible things go on each and every day? I think about crimes against children. I think of all of the abuse in the world. 
I think about all of the abusive husbands that mistreat their wives and the abusive mothers that hurt their children. And I think about rebellious teenagers who don't want to follow the rules of authority. I think about all of the people that will be arrested today because they broke uh, laws. I think of all of the Ten Commandments that will be broken. And even at this very moment right now, all of the people taking God's name in vain all over the world, hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of times. And listen, the Bible says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Listen, no matter how much sin there is in the world, God's grace is greater than that sin. Amen. Uh, It's really easy to look at other people who are greater sinners than we are. But how about when we look in the mirror at ourselves? How about the sin that I will commit today? That you will commit today? Where your sin abounded, grace did also much more abound. We're talking about the abundance of God's grace. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ... This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Listen, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Oh, that gets me excited to think about. Jesus Christ uh, ushered in uh, the era of grace, a new covenant of grace. He laid to rest uh, the old covenant of the law and built upon it and completed it a new era of grace. The New Testament or covenant uh, writers would describe God's grace in very powerful terms. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says that His grace abounds. Ephesians 1, 7 describes the riches of His grace. 1 Peter 4, 10 talks about manifold grace. Ephesians 2, 7 describes it as the exceeding riches of His grace. 2 Corinthians 4, 15 Paul calls it abundant grace. And in 1 Timothy 1.14, Paul again describes the exceeding abundant grace. We have an abundance of God's grace available to sinners today. And for that, I am very grateful. We see the abundance of God's grace. Notice next, by way of introduction, we uh, our access because of God's grace. Our access because of God's grace. What does grace do for you practically? Okay, uh, God is gracious and He pours out His grace on sinners, but what does that mean in my day-to-day and in your day-to-day? Because of God's grace, we have access to salvation. Ephesians 1.7 says, "...in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace." There was a day and time in my life where I understood the very fact that God loved me, but He hated my sin, and that if I died in my sin, that I would be separated from God for all of eternity. The wages or price of sin is death or separation. And God wanted to free me from the penalty of sin, but as long as I was attached to sin and not under God's grace, but in my sin, that I was condemned, I was under a condemnation, if you will, I was damned to an eternal separation from God in a place called hell. And as a young boy, I understood that Jesus Christ had died. And in His death, He became my sin on the cross. And He who knew no sin became my sin so that I could become the righteousness of God in Him. As we read a moment ago, He who is rich became poor so that I who am poor can become rich through him and in God's grace I came to Jesus on the cross and I humbled my heart and I prayed and I said Lord I'm a sinner I do not deserve salvation thank you for dying for me and something amazing happened when I put my faith in Christ alone and I put my faith in his grace Ephesians 2:8 and 9 says for by grace speaking of the death of Christ on the cross his resurrection from the dead for by grace are ye saved through Faith. You see, my faith was put inside of God's grace, and when I believed that Jesus had died and rose again for me, something happened. I was given access to God in the way of salvation. I was given that gift of eternal life, that gift of grace, which is eternal life, was given to me. My crimes against a holy God were pardoned, were were expunged, were removed from my record, mercy, and then I was made a joint heir of Jesus Christ and a child of the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
You see, I'm not going to heaven because I have done some sort of good works and earned my way. I'm going to heaven because God in His grace forgave me of my sin and gave me the gift of eternal life. You see, practically God's grace is available for everyone, but it is only uh, it is only good to you if you humble yourself and look to God in heaven and call on His name for salvation. The abundance of God's grace, the access of God's grace, uh, the, or rather our access because of God's grace, God gives us salvation, but not only does He give us salvation, He gives us sanctification. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. In fact, you're in 1 Peter, or 2 Peter 3. Turn back over to 1 Peter and look at verse 5, chapter 5 with me and look at verse number 10. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. Hang with me here. We're laying the groundwork to get into the message. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. The Bible says, But the grace, but the God of all grace, the God of all grace, all grace comes from God. If you're gracious to someone else, you are behaving uh, in the image and likeness of God. You are giving grace that was granted to you, and it is flowing uh, from God through you onto others. The God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, look here, make you perfect, or mature, or complete, or whole, establish, strengthen, settle you. Now listen, I put my faith in Jesus Christ to forgive my sins on April 8th, 1988. That was 34 years ago. And over the last 34 years, I have been going through a glorious process and a very messy process called sanctification. What does that big fancy theological word sanctification means? Let me make it really simple. It means you are being turned into the image of God. You are being made in the image of the Son of God. Jesus walked this earth. The Bible says, we'll look at it a little bit later in the message, that Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. God is trying to take us from being selfish to being selfless. From being faithless and fearful to being faithful and and faith-filled. He's trying to take us from being uh, uh, leaning on our own understanding to leaning on God's understanding. From walking in worldly wisdom to walking in heaven's wisdom. From being impatient and, and, and quick-tempered and, and, and ill-mannered to being long-suffering and patient and meek and temperate. You see, God is walking us through this process of changing us and the moment you get saved until the moment you step on heaven's shore, He is going to continue to use the Spirit of God to try to change you into the behavior of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the process of sanctification. I have to say, I am so grateful for God's grace in this process. Let me, if I could, illustrate this uh, for you today. I, I heard my pastor when I was a little boy use this, and boy, it has helped me so much through my Christian life, and I've used it here before. It's been a while. The Christian life is much like taking two steps forward and one step backwards. And two steps forward... And one step backwards. And three steps forward. And two steps backwards. How many of you know what I'm talking about this morning? How many of you take some steps backwards sometimes? Okay. If you don't have your hand up, either you're not saved or you're lying. Alright? Okay. Listen. I have gone backwards in my Christian life before. How many of you have ever gone backwards in your Christian life before? You had a bad day? Maybe a bad month? Maybe even had a bad year? Right? You were away from the Lord... Next thing you know, you're watching stuff on TV no Christian has the right to be watching. And you're talking ways that Christians shouldn't be talking. And you're running around with people Christians shouldn't be running around with. And you're just not really, you're not reading your Bible, you're not going to church, you're not praying. Uh, you're just all over the map. Uh, you've become a double-minded man or double-minded woman as J- the book of James describes. And listen, the important thing is that if you've taken steps backwards, that you get back up and you start taking steps forward for the Lord. And until you get to heaven and you're made whole in Christ, it's going to continue to be a process of forward and backwards and forward and backwards and forward and backwards. The sanctification process sounds romantic, being made in the image and behavior of God, but boy, it sure is a messy, messy process. God's grace is poured all over us 
as we go through that process. Salvation, sanctification, or access because of God's great grace. Quickly, I won't spend much time on this one, but how about supplication? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. You're in Second Peter. Flip back a couple of books to the left there to the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter. So three books back there to the left. Hebrews, large book, chapter 4, and look at verse number 16. The Bible says, I begin reading here, Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace, grace to help in time of need. Now, this is really cool. This is really neat, all right? Jesus, the first time he came, he came as a prophet. The next time Jesus comes, he's coming back as a king. He's going to rule and reign out of Jerusalem for a thousand years. He's going to overthrow the Antichrist. He's going to pick up him by the nap of the neck. He's going to pick up Satan by the nap of the neck. He's going to bind him in chains. He's going to throw him into hell. And I'm going to stand there and clap the whole time. All right? I'm sick of Satan tempting me and, 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 uh, and, and getting me to do wrong. I'm sick of a broken world. He's going to pick up the two uh, uh, perpetrators. He's going to throw them into hell. And then he's going to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. So again, Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. The first time he came, he came as a prophet. The next time he comes, he comes as a king. Right now, Jesus is seated, the Bible tells us, at the right hand of the Father. And what is Jesus doing right now? He is acting as our priest. Now, for those of you here that grew up in a Catholic church or maybe still have Catholic leanings, let me just teach you some very basic doctrine. I am not called a father and I am not called a priest because I am not your priest. Jesus Christ is your mediator. The Bible says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus right now, the Bible teaches, is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And when you walk into the throne room of grace and you call out to God in heaven, Jesus acts as your mediator. He takes your prayers. He turns and tells them to the Father. And the Father says, because you died on the cross for them, I will grant that prayer. And it comes back through Jesus and is given to you. Jesus, in His grace, uh, the man of grace, Jesus Christ, He is the one that provides for us the ability to pray and supplicate and take our needs to the Father. You don't need to come confess your sins to me. You don't need to go confess your sins to some other man or woman. You can go straight to heaven and you can tell God in heaven what you've done wrong. And through Jesus, you are forgiven. James 4, 6 says, But He giveth more grace, wherefore He saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. You enter into the throne room with boldness, but yet you enter with a spirit of humility. Romans 6, verse 1 says, What shall, ye, what shall, we, then, uh, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Uh, 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 let me back up here. We've looked at um, we've looked at the abundance of God's grace. We've looked at our access because of God's grace. Notice next, by way of introduction, our attitude and actions because of God's grace. Our attitude and actions. God's grace should not lead me to a point of pride. It should lead me to a life of humility. Life of humility. What do I have to be proud of? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, what do you have to be proud of? Well, considering that you were, if you're saved, you have put your faith in Jesus, consider the fact that you were on your way to hell under the condemnation, and Jesus came along in His great mercy and grace and forgave you, who are you to now bow up and act like you're something special? You're not. And neither am I. You know what we should be? We should be humble servants of God. Because we don't deserve anything good. If my daughter turns around and acts like she's something great after I let her out of being punished and I took her out and bought her pizza and now she's acting all proud in my direction, we're going to have to have a serious talk. You look at her and say, girl, what is your problem? Right? And here we are acting like we're something special. Uh, God's lucky to have us on His team. God's lucky that we sure go to well, go to church and, and go, well, boy, you know what? That pastor should be uh, thankful he has me teaching in that class. And boy, if it wasn't for me, that nursery, uh, it'd be falling apart. And, and listen, uh, if I wasn't on the usher team, they'd all be ugly. All right? And here we are. We got all this pride in our heart. And God says, wait a minute. You were under the condemnation of sin. You were heading to hell. I sent my son to die on the cross in your place. The substitutionary atonement. You put your faith and believed in me for salvation. And now you want to sit here and act like you're something special? James 4, 6. James 4, 6 says, uh, but he giveth more grace. How do we get this grace? 
But he saith, God resisteth, he pushes away the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. What is our attitude? Our attitude should be that of humility. I choose to humble myself before God and leave behind a life of sinful living. How about Romans chapter 6 verse 1? Uh, uh, turn over there, Romans chapter 6, and look at verse number 1. I want us to see a few verses out of Romans 6 here. People get the idea that, well, we're not under the law anymore, we're under grace, so now we can live however we want. Oh, no, that's not how this works. You don't get to just go do what you want, when you want, how you want. Well, we're under grace, we're under grace. All warn against this type of behavior. Look at Romans 6, and look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Look down to verse 14. And by the way, we could be here for three hours just studying Romans chapter 6. But this is just the, the, the Cliff Notes version. Look at verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. God forbid that we should run over the grace of God and take advantage of His kindness and His goodness to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10 says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. Listen here. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Pastor Andrew got up here a few minutes ago, and upon my request, we talked about this this week, I asked him to really push our outreach program launching this Saturday. And the reason why I had him push that prior to the sermon this morning is I wanted you to know that God's grace ought to drive you to some behaviors. God's grace should not just have you sit like a, 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 just like a bump on a log doing nothing, right? The old song says, Standing on the promises, I shall not fail, right? Some people don't stand, uh, don't stand on the promises, they sit on the premises. They just sit around, right? And come to church, absorb a sermon, and go home and feel better about myself. Now, if you're new to our church, that's fine. Come here, sit here, we're glad to have you. But if you've been here a good long time and you're faithful, let me tell you what God expects of you. He expects His grace to motivate you to turn around and be gracious and kind to others. He expects you to get up off of your tail and do something for the kingdom of heaven. Listen, the world is under the condemnation of sin. God's grace is the answer. And if we're not like Paul saying, His grace drives me to labor more abundantly than they all, then God's grace has not changed our living. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, Paul says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always have all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. It should drive us to do good works. 1 Peter 4.10, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The more I understand God's grace, the more it pushes me to do the work of God with an attitude of humility and an attitude of gratefulness. You see, grace living leads to grace giving. When I live under the spout of God's grace and am the blessed recipient, I then should turn around and give to God and others through that same grace. Go back to 2 Peter 3, where we began just a moment ago. 2 Peter 3, and flip just a page to the right there, and look at 1 John chapter 3. Uh, 1 John is the next book after 2 Peter, all right? 1 John chapter 3, and look at verse number 1. My goal this morning is not to overwhelm you with information. I know some of you may feel that way right now. My goal is to remind you of what God's grace is and how it ought to make us live so that we lay a foundation for the message. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. What manner of love? What level of love? What type of love? That we should be called the sons of God. Let me just pause right there. Everybody look up here. We were the children of Satan on our way to hell under the condemnation of sin. And God in His mercy came and He pardoned all of our sin debt and cut them off at salvation. And then He gave us the title, heirs of God, children of God. Behold what manner of love. That is an intense, insane, unreal incomprehensible level of love that God would wash away our sins with the blood of Jesus and give us 
the title of Son of God. We've gone from children of the world to children of the King. Look back at verse 1, 1 John 3. Uh, Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. God, who is rich in grace, bestowed or gave His love to us that we could be made part of His family. Now go back to 2 Peter 3 and look at verse 18. We're going to read this verse again. 2 Peter 3, 18. Okay, so we now understand what God's grace is. We understand the abundance of it. We understand our access because of it. And we understand how this should alter our attitude and our uh, actions. Look at 2 Peter 3 and let's read verse 18. Here we go. Ready? But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Many, I've watched many a mom and dad look at their toddler or their two, three, four-year-old or maybe their 13-year-old and say, you just need to stop growing. Don't grow anymore. You're going to grow up and leave me. Right? And, and I get the sentiment. I've got kids. I've said it. Alright? Here's the reality. If my child at three years old had stopped developing, we'd be on our way to a doctor. Right? We'd be very concerned. Now why? We expect our children to grow in their motor skills and in their academic skills and in their emotional and social and physical skills. We expect their bodies to grow. We expect their coordination to grow. If your, if your eight-year-old is still saying goo-goo-ga-ga and crawling around on the floor, you've got a problem. You've got, you got a medical problem you have to look at. You listening this morning? There's a whole lot of Christians. God's grace has saved you. But you have not grown in that grace. God's grace expects you not to stay a babe in Christ. There ought to be markers that take place. Um, I, my, my, uh, my family went to Peru about this time last year, uh, uh, this time about nine, ten months ago. and They were in Peru for a month while I was back here pastoring the church. And I joined them in Peru. And I, I really think my daughter grew about three inches over that, over that month, month and a half. And, and I looked at her and I said, wow, you got tall. Wow, you got tall. Um, <laughs> if someone were to go a month or a month and a half without seeing you, spending time with you, and then get around you, they say, wow, you were really growing in the Lord. God's grace has really changed you. There were some immaturities in your life and, and now I'm seeing those begin to fall off because you have, you, in just a, a month and a half or just six months or just a year, look at these changes that are taking place in your life. You see, what happens, Christians, is that we go through these growth spurts and then we plateau. And if we're not careful, we stay plateaued for years. And then we cease to grow. I want to just challenge you this morning. Put that title back up there for me, Brother Joe. How has... God's grace changed your living. What in your life is different now than six months ago, 12 months ago, two years ago, five years ago? We're going to look at four thoughts this morning as I ask you this question, how has God's grace changed your living? Okay, get your bulletins out on the back of the bulletin. You'll find a fill-in-the-blank outline. Get your pens out. Let's, let's get going on the outline this morning. Number one, notice our surrender to grace living. Our surrender to grace living. Um, let me give you an A and a B here. Notice letter A, a Christ-like choice. A Christ-like choice. You see, when you surrender to living within this system of God's grace, you're choosing to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible says, And the Word, speaking of Jesus, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. What was the glory of of God? It was Jesus. But what was the glory of Jesus? The Bible tells us that He was full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. You know what that means? That Jesus knew the laws, and He kept the laws, but he was also gracious in his behavior toward others. He was not rigid. He was not unkind. He was not nasty. He knew the truth, but yet he was balanced 
with grace. John chapter 1 verse 17, the Bible says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You see, when you choose to balance grace and truth in your heart and life, you are choosing to follow a style of living modeled by the Lord Jesus Christ. The law executes while grace extends. The law punishes while grace shows patience. The law is regulatory while grace is relational. The law represents the pharisaical model while grace and truth represent the model given to us by Jesus Christ. When you surrender to grace living, you are surrendering to a Christ-like choice. Letter B, notice you are surrendering to a considerable change. A considerable change. Um, Acts chapter 20, verse number 24 says, But none of these things move me. Paul speaking here. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry, listen to this, this phrase here, which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul, you're at the end of your life. Paul, what, what, how would you define your ministry? Paul says, I would define my ministry as uh, that which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul is saying here that I have lived a life marked by grace, um, uh, modeled of Jesus Christ Himself. All the political world had known was Roman law and the punishment of those who did not follow uh, the letter of it. Uh, And the Jewish religious world had known uh, the Mosaic law and punishment of those who did not comply. Paul came along and said, I have given my life to a new model fashioned by Jesus Christ. This model puts a magnifying glass on of God's grace and not on God's law. How do you do this? 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace. You must choose to get in God's system of grace and grow in that grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that we grow in grace, uh, that as, or rather that we grow in grace as we grow in our knowledge of the author of grace. You see, the more I know about Jesus in His life, the more I practice His temperament, the more I will grow in grace. How much do you know about the Lord Jesus Christ? How many times have you read the Gospels? How much have you studied His life? Uh, How much of His style and personality and temperament are you seeking to mimic and follow and copy? You see, Paul put it this way in Philippians 2. He said, "Let let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. We are to know the mind of Christ, the mindsets of Christ, and we're to grow in our knowledge of who He was and how He handled people. Many people, listen up now, many people are simply looking to get by on following a generic set of rules. If I just, if, if I just obey the Ten Commandments, then I'm good with God. Well, good luck on that. Good luck on that. I, I've asked people, I say, do you know you're going to heaven when you die? And I say, I think so. And I say, well, how does a person get to heaven? Well, they te- keep the Ten Commandments. Can you name for me all Ten Commandments in order? No. Well, good night. Don't you think if keeping the Ten Commandments gets you into heaven, you should at least know what they are? Right? And listen, I know there's people that know all ten. But even if you know all ten, are you actually keeping them? Not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. More about that here in just a moment. You see, this is a change in our thinking. Instead of focusing on rules, 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 we focus on having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we fall in love with God and the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God robed in flesh, as we fall in love with Him, keeping the rules happens by default. This leads to a life of great living, but it also leads to a life of grace giving. You see, listen now, You can give to others without grace, but you cannot be gracious and not give. Our surrender to grace living leads to a life of grace giving. We have been preaching a series of sermons about giving to the Lord. We have been preaching a series of sermons about being rich in heaven, being rich toward God, and I want to really get into the nuts and bolts of what God expects from me and you in our financial giving to the church. Now, if you're visiting today, let me just throw out a quick disclaimer. 
I preach a series on finances every year in the month of August, and that's subject to change, but that's been my pattern the last two or three years. Outside of August, I hardly talk about money. You ask anybody that attends here regularly, I am not a high-pressure, high-money guy. That's not my style. I don't like talking about this. In fact, when I, the first several years I was the pastor, I would preach one sermon on it a year, and I would leave it alone. But the reality is that the topic most talked about by Jesus is the kingdom of heaven. The second most talked about topic in the, uh, by Jesus is money. He talks about it uh, more. Uh, the only other thing he talks about more than money is the kingdom of heaven. And if I'm not preaching on money, I'm not preaching the whole counsel of God. So please understand, I'm not trying to uh, coerce. I'm not trying to do anything other than just teach the Word of God, exactly the way it is. I am not a big, high-pressure, give-me-your-money guy. We're just going to look at the Bible and see what it says. Okay, number two, two systems of giving. Two systems of giving. Now, this, I hope, will really help some of you have a shift in the way you see things from the Word of God. I have tried my best to talk about grace in the introduction. I've talked about living by grace in point one. Now let's talk about giving by grace in point two. All right, letter A, notice the law's requirement. The law's requirement. Let me also throw this out here. If you know independent Baptist culture, then this is going to be a little bit different than what you have traditionally heard if you're, if you're new to our church. If you grew up going to an independent, fundamental Baptist church, then this will be a different take on uh, giving. And so some of you in here might have your guard up. You might think I'm wrong. Listen, when we get to heaven, God will sort it all out, and you'll come and apologize to me then. Amen? All right. The law's requirement. I'm being facetious. I want everybody to turn to these two passages. Numbers 18, verse 24, and then we're going to look at Malachi chapter 3 in just a moment. Numbers 18 and verse 24. Make your way over there. Moses came along And he gave the Israelites a command to give 10% of all their increase to God by way of the priesthood. Alright? So the priests, the priests were to receive a, if you will, 10% tax of all of the people. And that money was funded to take care of the Levite family and uh, the, the tabernacle and all of the expenses that went on with religious worship within the country. Look at Numbers 18, verse 24. And to my knowledge, this is the first time the word tithe is used in the Bible, and this is the first time it is commanded of God's people. Look at Numbers 18, 24. But the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer as an heave offering unto the Lord, I have given to the Levites to inherit. Therefore, I have said unto them, among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. So, um, uh, God speaks through Moses and He says, you are to take 10% of all your income and you are to give it as a heave offering or give it as an offering to the the priesthood. It is to be right off the top. It is to be first fruit given to the Lord. So, 300 years or so prior to Jesus' birth, this is several thousand years later, uh, turn over to Malachi 3, uh, the Israelites had gotten away from the law of tithing, and God sent Malachi to remind them and reprimand them for their stingy hearts toward money. Malachi 3, look at verse number 8. The Bible says, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed God? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Verse 10. Alright, so the nation of Israel had taken a giant step backwards in this area of giving. Now Malachi is going to tell them how to take two steps forwards. Look at verse 10. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. So the Old Testament law uh, was that they must give, they must give 10% or they were robbing God of His money, they were poking holes in their pockets and money sacks, if you read down further, and they would forego all blessings from God on their daily living. So one system of giving is that you grit your teeth and you give the 10% of your paycheck so that uh, we follow some obligatory law. This kind of attribute uh, comes from fear 
that I better or obey or God will punish me and hurt or hurt me in some way. You may give long term, but you will not find joy in giving to the Lord like this. All right. And so we see the law's requirement. Letter B, we see grace's request. Grace's request. Look at, uh, uh, take your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 5. So look, we're going to go back into Bible study mode here for just a moment. So take your Bibles back over to Matthew 5 and look with me at verse number 17. So Jesus comes along and everyone's like, who's this new kid on the block, right? Who's this guy preaching uh, a very different and, and, and he's preaching with great authority, the end of the, the Sermon of the Mount, uh, the folks say, Matthew chapter 7, into Matthew chapter 7. Uh, he does not teach like the Pharisees. He teacheth like one who understands the law and the prophets. And so Jesus comes along and he's ushering in a new attitude of grace. Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. Jesus says, I am not come to destroy, what? The law or the prophets, but to fulfill. I am come to fulfill the law. Jesus said, I did not come to do away with the truth or the law, but rather to add to it a thicker, a thick layer of grace. So uh, I want you to write this quote down if you can. Here it is. Grace requests a higher standard than the law requires. Grace requests a higher standard than the law requires. So grace sets, uh, rather the law sets the standard here. Grace comes along and says, if you'll fall in love with the one who made the law, then the standard will be elevated higher. All right? Let me give you a couple examples of this right out of Matthew chapter 5. Look down at verse 27. We see the law at one level and grace elevating the standard. Look at verse 27 of Matthew 5. It says, Ye have heard that it is said of them by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's Exodus 20. That's one of the Ten Commandments. There's the law. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Here comes grace. Verse 28, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, the law required that we not commit adultery. Right? As long as a man does not sleep with a woman that is not his wife or a woman sleep with a man that is not her husband, you are not in violation of the law. Jesus came along and said, I want you to not only follow the law, I want you to follow the spirit of the law. I'm going to elevate, grace is going to take this and elevate it higher. So the law says, don't do this. Grace comes along and says, if you'll have a relationship with me, then I can take you up here, and now you don't even have to look with lust. How about the law that says, thou shalt not murder? Both Jesus and his half-brother James both tell us that if you hate your brother, then you are guilty of murder. So the law says, thou shalt not murder. Love and grace comes along and says, you shouldn't even hate your brother, which is the spirit of the law. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. You're Matthew 5, look down at verse 44. This won't be on the screen at home. I'm throwing this in here. Notice that uh, uh, Jesus tells his, his um, uh, disciples here in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard that it said, uh, love, your, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Look at verse 44, but I say unto you, thou shalt love thine enemies. Right? You're to love your enemies. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I don't have it right here in front of me. You do. Love your enemies. Do good to them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and say all manner of evil against you. What are we supposed to do? The law says, the law says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Grace comes along and says, love your enemies. You see this? Here's the standard of the law. Grace comes along and raises the standard. Now, that isn't just with our living. That's also with our giving. Go back to Now, turn over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And here really is what I want you to get from the sermon this morning. I want you to understand that when God's grace touches your life, now we're getting to the root of the issue. You're not giving by force your finances to the Lord through the church. You're not, you're not gritting your teeth and dropping your, your offering envelope into the plate. You're not reaching in your back pocket and taking $20 of coffee money that you hope to spend at Starbucks and saying, Oh Lord, here it is. No, instead, your heart attitude changes because you're not giving in order to appease God's wrath and avoid the, the law. No, instead, you have fallen in love with God. His grace has been poured on you and now you're giving out of a heart of grace. Look at Acts 4 
And look at verse 32. What happens when we give by grace? Something amazing happens. The Bible says, "...in the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things uh, which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus." These are first-hand accounts. These people saw Jesus Himself. Look here, "...and great grace..." was upon them all. If you mark your Bible, underline those words. Great grace was upon them all. Because they saw God in the form of Jesus in first hand, a first person, that grace radically changed them all. How did this affect them? Look down at verse 34. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles were surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation or the son of encouragement, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Why did these people give greatly? They gave greatly because God's grace had touched them greatly. You see, these folks had a deep knowledge of Jesus because they watched with their own two eyes as public ministry. They watched Him heal people who were physically sick. They lived in the same city where He had been killed. Many of them were eyewitnesses' accounts of His resurrection. And they had all been saved by His grace. Listen now, they had a deep knowledge of Jesus, so they gave in great abundance. Turn over to Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Luke chapter 6. I'm trying to help some of you here have a a shift in in, in why and how and and the purpose behind our giving financially to the church and uh, to the Lord through the church. You see, we're not doing this to fulfill the law. No, we're doing this because we want God. We want to live inside of a system of God's grace. Luke chapter six verse thirty-eight. Look here. It says, "Give and it shall be given unto you." Good measure, that, mean, that word measure means just what it sounds like. You measure something out, right? You ladies that cook or you men that cook, you know all about measuring, right? Good measure, so you, a good healthy amount, pressed down and shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom. For the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. Shall be measured to you again. What is the Bible saying here? It's saying that you should give out of a heart of abundance. Why? Because God's grace is abundantly poured on you. You give abundantly uh, to God. And what happens is when you give uh, a good amount, God is going to give back to you. Now, uh, notice this statement here. I believe this is going to be on the screen. If you give much, it's because God's grace has changed you much. If you give little to the Lord, it's because His grace has done little for you. If you give much, it's because God's grace has changed you much. You you reach, and by the way, I just want to get this in here. I don't know, many of you know this, you've heard me say this before, those of you that are new to the church in the last year, I don't know who does the giving at White Oak Baptist Church. I don't look at the offerings. Um, We have a, a, a deacon who's a treasurer, been faithful in our church for many years, He is the only one here who records the giving. He does not tell his soul. He does not tell his wife. He is the only one. You, God, and this deacon are the only ones that know who do the giving at White Oak Baptist Church. So when I make this statement, it is not aimed at anybody. All right? This is a a generic statement. This is shotgun style, right? It's just going to spray all over the room. All right? Here it is. If you reach in your pocket and just give what's left over to the Lord in the offering plate, what you are saying is... God, your grace has not done much for me. And so I don't need to do much for you. If you reach in and say, Lord, I have and I'm going to give because I I want others to be helped. What you're saying is God's grace has touched me greatly and so I will give purposely to the work of the Lord. If, if, let's read that, that, let's read the screen together there. Ready? Here we go. If you give much, it's because God's grace has changed you much. 
if you give little to the Lord, it's because His grace had done little for you. You see, we don't give out of force. We don't give because we're uh, we're following some law. We give because God's grace has greatly changed us. Number one, our our surrender to grace living. Number two, two systems of giving. Number three, notice our spirit toward giving. Our spirit toward giving. Take your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians chapter number 9. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. If you get to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, you've gone too far. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, right after the book of Romans and 1 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and look with me at verse 6. I'm going to begin reading here. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully every man according as he purposeth in his heart. So let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. Let's finish the verse out. Here we go. For God loveth a cheerful giver. Now I want to draw a couple things out here for you. Letter A, notice faith, not force. Faith, not force. Notice that 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, is faith emphasized. Faith emphasized. Look there. It says, every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. So what do we know about giving to the Lord through the church? This is a premeditated, predetermined amount that has been prayed over and carefully considered. All of our giving, whether it be the giving of our time or the giving of our spiritual gifts or the giving of our finances, all of our giving must be done by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says, But without faith... It is impossible to please Him. And yes, this includes our financial giving to the Lord. It should be done by faith. So, faith emphasized, but notice also, force denounced. Force denounced. Look back at verse 7. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth the cheerful giver. This describes much of the giving of my early Christian life. All right, It wasn't that I didn't want to give to God it was that I, at times, felt that I didn't have it to give. Uh, I'll open up my, my past here and just share this quickly. Uh, my first job out of college. I'm a college grad. I got a college diploma, and I landed a job within uh, something that felt, fell within my uh, career path there. I was hired. I graduated with a degree in pastoral theology. I was hired to work at a church in their Christian school to be a, a Christian school high school teacher. And my starting salary was a whopping $18,500 a year. $18,500 a year. And my wife was hired. And she was going to be a teacher's assistant and then be the secretary in that ministry Spanish church. And her whopping salary was $12,500 a year. So now you're looking at a total of $31,000 that we had to live off of. And so you know, how much money, you know how much money we had to eat out every month? Zero. You know how we ate out? On credit cards. Really bad choices. Alright? We weren't making any money. We were making nothing. And starvation wages. And we weren't receiving any government help. We were paying everything out of our own pocket. You know, I'd go to church on Sunday morning. I hope I'm hitting someone right where you're living right now. And I would take 10% of what I was making. And I would drop that in the offering plate. And I would grit my teeth. Because I did not have it to give. I did not have any money left over at the end of the month to give to the church. You say, well, why did you give? Because I was on staff at this church, and I was afraid of being punished for not contributing to the offering. I was afraid my giving record was going to get pulled, and I was going to get pulled into some supervisor's office and and, and chastised over this. So I gave begrudgingly. I gave begrudgingly. I gave by force. You know, um, God has blessed us, and we now uh, make a, a much better salary, and, and God has been good to us. We took our lumps through church ministry. Sometimes I think people just show up in our life and see, 
you know, the vehicles we drive and the house we live in and the clothes we wear, and they think, oh, yeah, he's just this, that, and the other. Listen, we, we, my, my pay before I came here was $19,000 a year. Uh, we, we struggled through and, and, and took our lumps and drove broke down cars and, 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 and wondered how we were going to pay the bills and got ourselves in credit card debt. We, we made a lot of mistakes, but listen, as I have shifted my thought process from giving by force to giving by faith and, and, and giving a predetermined amount and working through these things, God has shifted me from giving by, by law to giving by grace. And you know what? God has blessed us accordingly. Letter B, notice, His glory, not our gloating. His glory, not our gloating. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at verse 8. The Bible says, And God is able. Notice those three words. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. The problem with giving out of necessity, or even giving sacrificially, is that we are tempted to gloat, to boast about the amount we, we gave or the great sacrifice that we made. I gave up coffee for a month and gave the difference to the church. Or I cut my cable package down. Or I, I did without in this way or that way and gave it to the Lord. When we give in these ways, we are tempted to gloat. When we understand the origin of all of our resources and we give back to God and we give to better the institution of the church, that Jesus founded, and He gets the glory and not us. I'm going I'm to put a challenge out here to all of you that go to this church faithfully and, and contribute to our offerings, all right? Here's what I want all of you to do that work a job. I want you to go home. I want you to get on your knees, and I want you to pray. And I want you to ask God to give you, including those who work here, all right? I want you to ask God to give you an increase financially over the next 12 months. Whether it's 5% or 10% of your income, maybe it's $5,000 more next year or 10000 or even twenty more, 20000 more. And then I want you to make a commitment to God. Lord, if you'll give me this much more income, then I will give this percentage of it to you through the church. Instead of giving sacrificially, let's ask God to give us more so that we can give more. You see, I think a lot of times God avoids giving us pay raises and extra because He knows how selfish we are and we're going to keep it all for ourselves. And God says, why would I channel money through you when it's just going to be a dead-end road? You're going to keep it all. You can go buy that new bass boat. You can go buy that new truck. Uh, you're going to go out and buy uh, more clothes. or You're going to go buy a bigger house. God says, well, hold on a minute here. How about this? I'll give you more if you'll be willing to let me channel that through you to others to be a blessing. Boy, if you get on your knees and you'll ask God, uh, guess what? He'll, he'll funnel that money through you and then you can step back and say, Lord, I prayed and you answered my prayer and here I am being obedient to you. And you know what? The work of the Lord through this church continues. The 56 missionaries that we support at $100 a month, uh, that money flows and we bring on more missionaries. And, and the, uh, the, the thousands and thousands of dollars we spend on stamps every year for the mail-outs and Great Commission Saturday. Boy, the amount of mail-out we can do expands. The, the, the door hangers that we print, the hang-on doors in the community, we can buy more of those. And the tracks we purchase to tell people how to go to heaven, we can buy more of those. And, and the program we run here to help people who are poor and needy. More comes in and we can do more for the kingdom of heaven as a result of God's people giving through a system of grace. You see, this is the right spirit toward giving. Not clenching of the fist and gritting the teeth and dropping in out of necessity but saying, I have looked at my income. I have seen what I can do and I'm going to give that by faith. Our spirit toward giving. You say, Pastor, are you saying that tithing is not in the New Testament. And I would say this, the word, the command to tithe is not found anywhere in the New Testament. But the command to give is over and over and over again. And if we follow this pattern of grace request a higher standard than the law requires, then guess what? We give what we can by faith and watch God increase us and we continue to give more and more and more as we grow in that grace. Number four, lastly, quickly, the surety of God's provision. I'm done. Look at verse 11 and 12 of 2 Corinthians 9. Being enriched, enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth 
Through us, thanksgiving to God for the administration of this service, not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. The old saying goes something like this, you cannot outgive God. How many of you have been going to give to the Lord long enough to have realized you cannot outgive God? Hold your hand up there if you've experienced this. You cannot outgive God. The more you give to the Lord, the more He gives back to you. He may not give it back to you in the form of dollars and cents, but He pours His blessings all over us. And He makes sure our needs and even many of our wants are met. When we choose to live under the philosophy of God's grace, we are far, far more concerned with the heaviness of our relationship to God, than we, or rather the healthiness of our relationship to God, than we are with just simply keeping a set of rules. When we live in God's system of grace, we abound with many blessings, and in that abounding, we give abundantly, and then we receive abundantly. And boy, it sure is a blessed way to live. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Lord, thank you for the chance to open up the Bible. And Lord, today was more teaching than preaching. God, I pray that your people have heard. The information has not only been transferred to the head, but Lord, that you are working on hearts. Lord, may we have the right attitude and spirit uh, toward our giving. May we not just give to keep some set of rules, but Lord, may we do it because your grace has so greatly changed our life. May we grow by grace. Somebody in here today is in that pattern of having taken a step or two backwards. Maybe even watching online, and they know they should be in the service, but they're not, and they've taken a step or two backwards. Lord, help us to advance forward. Help us to get back on track. Lord, help us to do so through a a close-knit relationship with you. Be with our service this morning. Lord, help us during this time of invitation to make choices about our view of your word and your law. Lord, help us to live in a system of grace. In Jesus' name.